Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist, to focus more on the emotional connection than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Welcome, race fans, to another episode of the Feelin' Film Podcast. I'm Patch, and with me, serving as the Ken Miles to my Carol Shelby, is my best friend and co-host, Aaron. Vroom, vroom, race car sounds. Woo! <laughs> this is when we need, like, sound effects guy. You we know? do. We need a drop. We need a drop. <laughs> so you hit a button and have something do that instead of me. <laughs> is there a button that allows you to have a great English accent? No, there is not. But I'm super glad that Christian Bale got to use his in this film because I absolutely love it when he speaks with that accent. And it's it's a rare time. I think every instance that I've heard him speak has either been with a regular American accent or with a Boston American accent <laughs> yeah. or something American. You know, you just, just watched The Fighter, though, so that's probably <laughs> where that's and coming from. And I watched the opening to Newsies because, uh, like okay. <laughs> everyone else in the world, Disney Plus, right? So it's just Christian Bale, Boston. Makes and sense. So it's good to hear him in his native Lingo? Tongue? Accent. Dialect? Accent? Okay, well, there we go. Just go with accent. <laughs> okay, we'll do that. Well, this week we are talking about the James Mangold directed biopic Ford v. Ferrari, centering around the events leading up to and including the 1966 Le Mans 24-hour race. I love that. I can say Le Mans. I feel like I'm, well, I feel like I'm French, but I also feel like I'm cultured. Yeah, it's Pro- fancy. Well, yeah, it's fancy. I guess after I butchered Christian Bale and his accent, maybe I'm not as fancy as I'd like to be. <laughs> well, if you're new to the podcast, know that we like to talk details when it comes to our film discussion. So let this serve as your official spoiler warning. Feel free to come back after seeing this great movie and join the conversation with us. With that, let's get to our one word takeaways. Aaron, why don't you start us? Well, I wrote down this word while I was watching the film. This usually doesn't happen, but sometimes... Every once in a while, it just comes to me. And I thought about it throughout watching the movie. I thought about it constantly as I was driving home, and I have not stopped relating this whole experience I had with Ford v. Ferrari to this word ever since for a week and a half, and that is wholesome. For me, it was incredibly tasteful. For all its drama and racing action, I loved that this story focused on genuinely good people. Friendships, marriage, fatherhood... We get so used to seeing biopics that show us how characters overcame obstacles like alcoholism or drugs or abuse, other addictions, terrible life choices, but not this one. Ken has a supportive and present wife and a son whom he dearly loves, and despite being away from them for his job, he makes every effort to stay close and form a connection with them. That, more than anything, was just so jarring to see because we are accustomed to this typical Hollywood depiction of an a-hole genius or artist of some kind. I loved the film and really enjoyed learning the history from it as well, but I came away refreshed and feeling good about having rooted for these characters from start to finish, not just because I needed them to have some sort of redemption, but because... They were good people worth rooting for the entire journey long. Yeah, and what Mangold does here is he offers a real sense of complete story, which that's my word, is complete. And it ties really nicely to yours because oftentimes we highlight the bad parts about a person's life or about a certain group's life. 
And it's that bad part or that darkness that they go to that serves to catapult them to redemption by the end of the movie. Having a movie like this feels a little weird because we're not used to it and because we're kind of waiting on something bad to happen at some point. And truth be told, something does happen. We'll get to that later in the show. But it's not something that's overly dramatic, like, oh, that's the moment. So I was not really on pins and needles, but I was really more anticipating when's the bad part going to happen. And the fact is, the movie didn't have it and it didn't need it. Everything felt pretty even keeled, which is probably why I have a weird hesitancy about giving my star rating. Right now it's at a four and a half. I'm hoping that maybe with a second watch, maybe sleeping more on it, it might bump up. But I'm hesitant to give it a five, even though I loved it so much. And I think it's because it didn't have that wow moment. It didn't have the one pivotal scene or the one pivotal performance that really said, this is why you've got to see it. But to your point, Aaron, I think that's actually a good thing because most movies that I find really great have some portion of them or have some part that you have to kind of give a little disclaimer for. Like when I say you need to go see the Joker, however, know this going into it. You have to have some kind of a warning. Same thing with Rush. Hey, Rush is a fantastic racing movie, but you want to look out for this because it's got a lot of things that are going on that are pretty in your face. Ford v. Ferrari doesn't do that. Ford v. Ferrari is one of those movies where you're excited, you're rooting for the characters, and you almost feel a little guilty because you're like, these are almost too good of characters. These are almost characters and, and set pieces and things that feel a little too, not perfect, but a little too complete. But the truth is, I didn't mind that. In fact, I wanted that. So when you leave the movie theater and the credits roll and you're like, okay, this is one that I can fully say, you know what? You need to go see this. Nothing else need to be said. I had a chance tonight to talk to a, a group of friends really positively about the movie. And a lot of that had to do with the fact that the historical accuracy was really on point. There were very few things that I found that differentiated from what I read afterwards. And I can appreciate that because that's difficult when you're doing a biopic on a person or a group or an event, you tend to highlight the things that are going to be wow or that are really pretty much in your face and you downplay the things that don't seem very interesting. I think Mangled as a director took some risk with that and what came out of it was, to me, a complete film. Watching a James Mangold production reminds me of how meticulous he is as a director not just in how he directs, but in the set pieces, in his character development. Everything feels like it's purposeful. It feels like it's very detailed in how he puts a scene together and how he crafts the narrative overall. And I wanted to see if you latched on to anything specific about that with regard to his level of detail and if that level of detail helped bring you into the movie more than anything else. Was it one thing? Was it a number of things? Was there something that stood out to you among that type of stuff in like his set pieces, the character development and the props? Like how does that meticulousness play out in those areas for you? Well, for me, it was really about it being accurate. There are many biopics that take liberties with their characters. And we talk about it often, composite characters and the like. This one I saw with 
a friend who is an insanely humongous car nut. He drives a Ford Mustang. He goes to car shows all the time. And he knows this story in and out. And we were standing in our line or kind of waiting outside before we had a chance to go inside the little group of press at our screening. And he was giving us all a background lesson. Like he was telling us the history leading up to when the movie was going to start. And it was fascinating. And when we got done, I immediately turned to him and I asked, I was like, okay, so what's, what's different, man? Like what's wrong or what did they not get right? They got almost everything right. He was telling me tonight how he went and found one of those articles online that you'll always see that says, you know, real fact versus fiction, Ford v. Ferrari. And the things that they listed were all so, so minor. Things like when Ken Miles died, he actually got ejected from the car and died because he was on fire, having been ejected from the car. Um, but not that was not something that they needed to show. Right. And so very, very small, small details. Um, it's actually unknown at the end of this race, why miles ends up lining up with the rest of the group. He may have done it on purpose. Uh, he, uh, it's been said that I believe is it, is it McLaren that wins? I think McLaren is the one that wins, which by the way, is McLaren, Bruce McLaren of the McLaren, the mm -hmm. amazing sports car in the Fast and Furious movies. Yes. Uh, recent note. It is an amazing, amazing car, by the way. It is. And, uh, <laughs> but anyway, that guy has made comments about how he sped up right at the end because he wanted to win. So there's conflicting reports. This movie tends to, or tries, decides to go on the side of the dramatic, which is letting us believe that it was just, Miles's in, intention to tie <laughs> and what happened on a technicality was the, the difference. But there's very small, small things. I mean, for the most part, everything that happens here is accurate uh, with minimal dramatic license. And I appreciated that. And I felt that honestly, I felt the detail here, uh, learning that, you know, this character that was a, crew chief for miles and Shelby was a real person. And he was, I think his name was Paul or Pete. I can't remember which one it starts with a P, but he, Phil <laughs> it was neither. It was Phil. I think Phil. <laughs> he was the first non-driver to go into the hall of fame. Um, and so there's all of this special amount of detail put into it. The way that the cars wreck at certain points in the race. Um, that's always important to me. Like, is it, you know, buoy boosted up for dramatic effect. And I don't think it was. And so I appreciated that. Um, I, I also think that there is just a meticulousness to the focus on family and friendships and how this life affected everything about Ken Miles and not just was he going to be in the race car and win a race or not? That's what makes me love this movie so much is that it's not necessarily about win or lose at all. In fact, by the time the race gets there, I I've enjoyed the film on its own without the final climax, to be honest. Yeah. Mangold's gone on record as saying that they kind of approach this in a reverse order of, like leading up to, you know, letting the action pieces 
define the narrative. Instead, using the action pieces to accent the narrative. He wanted to go to, go into it as a drama and use really two events. There were three races total, I think, that we saw. We saw the the regular race between you know with Ken showing off that that he could he could race and have an attitude to go with it. And then there's Daytona and then finally Le Mans, which I will say personally, if there was a race that I gravitated towards more than anything else, it was Daytona. That's the one that I really felt I, I physically looked down at my at my hands and they were gripping the the chair next to me. And it was because of the lack of information that I had. Oftentimes when we look at a biopic, we do one of two things. Either we get up to speed on it and then we watch the movie and we look for those idiosyncrasies, those inaccuracies or those differences, which I guess can be fun if you're a sleuth. <laughs> but also if you're a if you're a fan of those, if you're someone who loved the events of Midway and you have a military background, as a friend of mine did, he had a completely different response than you did. Both of you guys are former military, but I'll be interested to see why he didn't like it as much. And it could be some of the same reasons that a lot of people don't like adaptations. It's because of the historical inaccuracies or maybe the leveraging of moments in history at different parts of a person's life where you move stuff around in order to make something make sense. Like Bohemian Rhapsody did that somewhat egregiously. I loved watching it. So not knowing all the events really didn't didn't hurt my viewing experience. But watching Ford v. Ferrari, knowing that a lot of what happened happened when it did, happened how it did, really became icing on the cake for me because it was like I loved seeing the story play out. And I loved knowing that Ken Miles didn't have some kind of dark side to him. I was waiting for a shoe to drop, honestly, Aaron. I was waiting for there to be a divorce or for someone to get mad and quit or some major thing to happen because that's what happens in biopics. That's yep. the turn that leads to a redemption. Yep. And the truth is it didn't happen. And maybe that's why those that may not like this as much as others, as other racing movies or other movies that have that biopic flavor to them, that's why they don't gravitate towards it because it felt almost like it wrapped up too nicely. But of course we know by the end of the movie, it doesn't. And that's the other thing that I found interesting is that Mangold doesn't spend a lot of time with Kim Miles tragedy with his death. I mean, it is not. And I think that's by design. Oh, I absolutely think it's by design. It's, I wrote down the word tasteful, which was almost my one word takeaway because that's how yeah. I felt about the ending. Yeah. And watching it, it had its own jaw dropping moment because there was a hint of it early on when he was testing the the GT40 on the runway, which, by the way, Shelby is awesome. The fact that he has his own runway and inside the hangar is his dealership. I mean, come on, that's just awesome. But using the using the runway as a track and seeing that moment where Miles gets set on fire, you're like, oh, my gosh, is he going to die? What's going to happen? And he doesn't using that as kind of a little foreshadowing of what happens later on. We didn't need to see it. We saw a glimpse of it with a voiceover, which was, I think, really, really tasteful, as you mentioned. And I think when Mangold brings all this together, he gives us a complete narrative. He gives us something where we have a beginning, middle and end. We have people that we care about. We have people that 
we may not hate, but we we have our antagonists, but they're not so ah 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 that we have to hate them necessarily. So even when we look at characters like Ford and BB, they're ultimately not bad guys. They just have a different motive. Um, and, and they, they don't result- understand. And, and when they do right. understand, there's a great moment, a fantastic moment with Ford. And Let's, by the way, is phenomenal. He is on my short list for Best Supporting Actor this year. I just think he's incredible as Henry Ford in such a small amount of time. By Henry does, Ford by, II. Henry Ford II. Henry Ford II. Yes, let's make sure he said that. Yeah, um, but he said when he goes on that race with Miles, when he takes him out in the car, right? He gets out of it. He says, I wish my daddy were alive to see this, to feel this. I had no idea. That's and that, that's what it's about. It's about that realization and that understanding that you don't have. You don't know what you don't know. But once you go from the corporate side to getting in the car, there's just a whole different perspective that opens up to you. And we got to see that multiple times from different characters in different ways. Well, and, and that helps unpack who he is as a character, because at the very beginning, he shuts down the assembly line and he basically says, go home unless you have a great idea for how this company can get better. That was brilliant. And it sounds very businesslike. It's like, you know what? We're not making money. We need better ideas. But when he gets in the car, yep. we realize that he loves the name. He is trying to be he's trying to make that name important again because he knows the power of that name that started the car industry. And he sees how important it is to carry that legacy, which is why I think in both a hilarious and a serious way, when he's told through, um, uh, who is it, uh, Lee Iacocca, what, what Enzo Ferrari says about him, he, he doesn't get, I mean, he gets mad, but he doesn't start fuming. He goes, and what else? And what else? It's almost like he was saying, just keep fueling me, keep fueling me because I need, genuine motivation to change my mind because he was completely apprehensive to the whole we don't need a new race car we have nascar and to see him make that transition through that kind of motivation really spoke to how important the name ford was to him not just as a company but as a legacy i mean he was a businessman but i think more than anything he was a proud son to be, or a proud grandson in this case, to be part of a legacy that was the Ford name. Yeah, I, well, I completely agree, and it, and it means the world to him as well. And there's uh, one of my favorite lines of the movie kind of highlights that they're talking about the fact that James Bond. Uh, somebody makes some says something about what James Bond driving Aston Martin or whatever, and Iacocca says James Bond does not drive a Ford. And Henry says, that's because he's a degenerate. (laughs) (laughs) And I just love it. And like, and he's dead serious. Like there's no, like we're laughing at it, right? Like that's hilarious, but he's not saying it as a joke. He's saying it because he truly believes that, you know what? That guy is out of his depth because he's not driving a Ford. Why would he ever not drive a Ford? That's crazy to him. That's how much he cares about it. Yes. It's very myopic. And when you see, how he goes from being myopic to aggressive. He's still myopic. He still believes Ford is the best company in the world. But that moment in the car, Aaron, which came close to being a connecting point for me, I think reminded him of what it was like to be a car builder. What it was like to be in that. As you mentioned earlier, when you can touch the engine, when you can feel the power behind that, 
and know that the word Ford is on that vehicle, there's got to be a huge amount of pride that that he was feeling in that moment. And I think it's what convinced him partially to let uh, to let Miles have a shot at racing at Le Mans, uh, which helped set up that great Daytona race. Uh, which I love so much. Well, Shelby also helps him. That's another piece of my favorite dialogue, and so I'm going to quote it because you're close to talking about it. And that is when Shelby goes through that whole section with him about the red folders, and he's sitting out there. He's about to go in, and he knows that he's got to kind of pay up for not being successful that first time around. He knows he's going to hear it. And he's waiting for this business meeting, and he goes in, and you know Ford's ticked off and all of the guys around Ford are upset as well. Specifically BB is a BB. I believe is, is his name. Yeah. BB. Fantastic performance by the way, because I despised that guy. Like and <laughs> I was supposed to like that. That was, I was supposed to hate him and it worked because I just could not. Oh, he just made me so infuriated every time he spoke, but it's during that meeting where he just casually tells Ford that you've got a Ferrari right where you want them. And Ford's like, um, excuse me? <laughs> what are you talking about? I just lost. And he says, that man is scared to death that this year you might be smart enough to actually start trusting me. So yeah, I say you've got Ferrari right where you want them. You're welcome. And it's it's that confidence that I think in that moment, Ford is like, this is what I wanted, right? No matter what the idea is, no matter what the method of getting to the finish line is the confidence that Shelby shows in what he is going to do sells forward because he needs that kind of buy-in and he understands that from a business world. Yeah. And when you look at Shelby and Ford and, and BB and miles to, kind of singled those four out. I think the movie really kind of centers on those four individuals. Iacocca sort of takes a back seat, which no pun intended, but I think when you've got, I thought he'd have more of, of a, of a role in the movie. Saving him for the sequel. Yeah, when he joins Chrysler and basically like doesn't revamps he, that yeah, whole company. I was going to say, doesn't he? Okay. He kind of, he kind of goes his own way after that, but he sparked the whole thing, but it really centered, most of the movie centers around those four individuals and the end goal for all of them in their own way is to win Le Mans and beat Ferrari. And I want to I want to hesitate when I say that last part, because I want to ask you, looking at their four motivations, they all end up at the end of this road looking for that outcome. But how do you see Mangold handling each of their journeys to that end? Does it say does it make them out to be heroes and villains or is there more of a blend do you and, and do you connect with any of their motives individually? Because I know you. I mean, obviously, you mentioned you didn't like BB at all, or and you were supposed to not like him. Yeah. But even in his motivation, um, did you see? Did you see any kind of, I guess, redemption or any kind of silver lining with any of these four and how how that journey got them to the to the end? Yeah. So BB's a character who just is there to get higher up for himself. Like he wants promotion. He wants to be the man. He wants to be in charge and he wants to do the safest thing that is likely going to bring Henry Ford, what it is that Henry Ford wants, because he wants to be in line to be the next guy. 
So it, his is a very selfish role that he plays. And I think you need that in a story like this because it helps to accentuate the unselfishness or the opposite desire of someone like Miles, who is very pure. He just wants to drive the best race car possible. And all of this whole situation is just a means for him to potentially get to experience that. And does he want to win? Absolutely, he wants to win. But I think that there is a passion and a purity to him being in that car that goes so far beyond whether or not he wins or loses. It's more about that experience for him. And Shelby, I feel like, is more in the middle. Shelby's kind of walking that line, right? Just like he does in the film with the business side of this. He's trying to balance the capitalist nature of what they actually need in a resource manner with his own passions and desires to make something great and have success that I think validates what he has created and his passion that he has, he has made this thing that is worthy of praise. And I love that. I love that we have them to balance each other out. And of course, Ford being the resource guy who wants to win like we've talked about, because he wants to be the best and he wants his brand to be known as the best. And he can't believe that there's somebody out there that could potentially challenge that, at least at first. Um, and, and generally speaking, I think we, he ends up in mostly the same place, uh, despite, you know, a little bit of, a little bit of actions in between that show he has a little more understanding, but his goal is still always going to be the same, right? Yeah. Uh, and, and so I, yeah, I like the difference of their journeys. I, I like the fact that this one event can be so impactful to different people in different ways entirely. Yeah, that's what I was getting at is that detailedness of Mangold. He cares for each one of these characters as they progress. And I would agree that BB does serve as sort of a foil to somebody like Miles or Shelby to an extent. But I would also say that all four of them are answering the why. Why do you want to win? And I think each one of them answer the question that any one of us could probably say yes to. The fact is winning Le Mans for Bibi would be an opportunity to validate that he's an important part of the company and putting together the right team and having his trust validated by Ford would be redeeming for him. In fact, there was a surprise. What surprised me later on in the film was to know that after that big conversation that you mentioned with Shelby convincing Ford to let him essentially have another chance, something that Ford said that I was reminded of later on in the movie was he said, you report to one man. And that man's going to give you what you need and blah, 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 assuming that it was just down to Ford and Shelby, the two car guys. But then later on, we find out that for some reason, in some way, BB has basically said, I'm going to take the rein. So somewhere along the way, BB convinced Ford that he's the guy. And I think that says something about Ford that even when he's driven, he loses sight of maybe the purity of what he's trying to do because he's trying to save his 
dad's company. He's trying to save face with the, his name, but he also is trying to find that, that business success. And I think that's the, that's the thing that BB brings in to this, uh, this quartet of characters is that he reminds Ford, look, at the end of the day, you're trying to make your business successful. You're not trying to stick it to Enzo Ferrari. Well, you're trying to do that, but you're also trying to make your company valid. And so I think he has some legitimate points. I don't like the way he goes about doing it. And I think you're right. The way he's set up against Miles and Shelby makes him out to be probably the baddest of the bad guys. But I still kind of respect his motive, even though I wouldn't necessarily follow along that path. Oh, I absolutely do, too, because there is a part of me that when I go to work, I can relate to BB extremely strongly because I don't want to take all the risks. I want to be calculated and I want to be smart. And Miles, as they mentioned several times, he's a wild card. He's uncontrollable and you are taking a huge risk. Does he give you the best chance to win? That is what the case that's being made is. And ultimately that comes out to be true. Yes, he does. But he also brings you the potential for extreme embarrassment or really disastrous failure. Um, and, and I understand when you're in a business and you're trying to play the odds that you have to take that into account, um, more so than maybe the Shelby and Miles group wants to. Yeah. And watching BB be that calculated really, really comes into play. When we find out that I think with what five or six hours left to go, maybe it's even earlier than that in the, in the race, all the Ferraris are gone. They're out. Like it's a surefire bet that all the Fords are going to win. So the motivation changes now. They're not out to beat Ford has done it. He's beaten Ferrari. So he has nothing more to prove. Yep. But then BB comes in and says, Hey, you know, it'd be really cool. If all three Fords came in and we got this great photo op to show one, two, three, he's always thinking about how do we make the company better? How do we continue to up the brand? I mean, it's well, his, great. Marketing. His job is a PR director from exactly. what I looked up. So like this is his job. He, right. he is doing nothing other than exactly what his, he is hired to do. Right. So it's hard to like, you want to hold him accountable for that. But that's not his role in the company. His role in the right. company is to bring that up. You want to hold somebody accountable for making that choice, it should be Ford. For for calling it and saying, yeah. this is what I want to do. Right. It reminds me a lot of the PR guy from the Memphis Bell, whose motives are different than that of the commander. They have their jobs, and we got to respect their jobs because that's what they've been asked to do. Even if one seems less important or less i don't say moral but but more shallow at the end of the day you're you're asked to do a job and if you don't do your job well you're gone agreed but i will say that bb has a little more of a personal vendetta by the end against miles absolutely and, and this all comes through the brilliant storytelling that this movie gives us all the way through because of what i said that wholesome piece and that whole focus on family and familial relationships the greatness of seeing the garage in work together with Phil, as I mentioned, the crew chief earlier and Shelby and Miles and even his wife and his son at different points. But 
there's so many amazing scenes of this, like when BB comes and they lock down the garage to, so he can get Ford out there, right? Like that is an amazing scene. And, and you can tell at that point from there forward, BB has a grudge. Like it has now become personal as well as business for him because he has been wronged. He has felt embarrassed uh, by the crew who sucked him in, locked him in the office, wouldn't let him out. I mean, it's a phenomenal scene. Like the whole audience is like laughing out loud. The theater is just raucous at that time, of course. Um, and they should be because it's great. But there's like moments like that are what makes this movie for me. And even lesser roles like Miles's wife and his son, who is played by Noah Jupe, also, by the way, who is like in everything these days. I just watched him in Honey Boy as well. And he is phenomenal as a young Shia LaBeouf. Um, that's not his name in the movie, but whatever. That's who he is. And he's fantastic young actor. I believe he was in the in Wonder. I believe it's the same kid who was in Wonder. So he is, boy, my goodness, this 14-year-old is a great actor. But there's so many great moments with his wife and his son. You know, like when he's teaching his son about the the track and where the turns are. That was almost a connecting point. I love when he doesn't get selected to drive the first time around and he's listening to it and his wife comes in with beer and turns the radio off. It's great. It's fantastic. You know, she like, she knows what he needs and she's there for him. She's supportive when she needs to be. And when she, and she's just, it's such a great relationship. And I, I can't tell you how much like all of those little moments make the finale of this so much more impactful for me. Molly has a great moment when he goes to check out the Ford GT40 and tries it out and just basically craps on it because it's got, a, and it's made to feel that way because it amplifies the fact that he knows cars and he's trying to skirt around where he went and what does she do? She doesn't slam on the brakes like we're used to seeing with someone saying, you know, tell me the answer. She speeds up and she becomes what? A racer's wife, because that's what she knows. There's the opening scene where we get introduced to him and then eventually her. I love seeing that, Aaron. I love the way that directors and writers can craft introductions to main characters to give us a lot of exposition without telling us a lot through voiceover and whatnot. We get to, we get to find out so much about their relationship and how deeply they care about one another. I, I love his relationship with this son. I love the fact that that first race, we get a hint at the fact that when he wins a race, what does he do? Brings his son in and they take a victory lap together. His son is all in with him and his son admires him when his garage gets seized and he throws out his trophies. What does his son do? He goes sneaks them back. Yeah, yeah, he goes and gets them because he knows not that his dad needs those trophies, but that he is proud of his dad enough to hang on to those things because he cares about him that much. Man, we don't see that a lot. We don't see a, a nuclear family like that where everyone is supportive of each other, where a wife is supportive of her husband and the passion that he has and where he is supportive of her. And I just, I fell in love with their relationship. I fell in love with that family. And it's something that we don't see a lot. We do see that aspect of family in 
other movies, racing movies, Fast and the Furious, for instance. But this is one that really felt like it was intentionally written, intentionally played out, and intentionally worked through the narrative. So I appreciate that Mangold shows us the fact that racing is an important part of that family, not just for Ken. And I, I, I would go back to what you said about how Ken wants to just drive a fast car. I think that's partially true. I think, I think he wants to just drive the perfect race because that was echoed a couple of times, especially when he is describing to uh, Peter how he is going, how he would do the race, the perfect lap, the perfect lap. And he says at the end of the conversation, Peter says to him, but you can't be perfect every time. And he goes, no, but I can try. Yes. Ah, I love it. Yeah. And I I love the foreshadowing because you know, it's coming. Yes, absolutely. And to see his son get so enamored and so swelling up with excitement and love and pride when his dad does it. And then does it again. He does it multiple times. He says he breaks his own record like three times in that (laughs) race. It is insane. It is so fantastic. Awesome. Did you know, by the way, that that whole brake change system, that was the first time this had ever been done in the history of auto sports. So they had to, when they built a car so that you could completely take out the brake assembly and replace it in the pit, pit, that that had never been done before this. That was an absolutely, truly innovative, like blown away kind of concept that helped them win because they did that. That is is so fantastic. And the reaction was so great. We've read your book. We've read the rules. And we're going to, we can do this. And it's just nothing. So many great. And I love that. I love the hit hat tap too. The head hat tap. I can't, I don't know what I'm saying. The hat tip. Hat tip from Enzo Ferrari um, to say to Miles and Shelby, like, you know, good on you. Like, you got me. You did it. Like, he respected and understood that he was beaten not by a fluke. You know, he was beaten by quality. And and, and I think game recognized game is the way that I see it. And yeah. I really appreciated that. It's like listening to a college coach saying, hey, he, he outcoached us. He did. You know, he earned that win. It wasn't something that like, oh, yeah, we made so many mistakes that this is what happened. No, everything about that team. And I will say the, the first four team. We don't know what the other two teams were like. Obviously, they finished second and third. But you have this team of individuals who were always thinking about how to better the team, how to better the car, all these different components that go into not being a true NASCAR pit crew like the other Ford team had at Daytona. They had to think creatively, which is probably the essence of how the the Ford GT40 came around. You had to be creative. You had to drop a new engine and think about, hey, let's shave this off. Hey, let's bring the wheel down a little bit. All these little intricacies that I will never understand unless I study cars for the rest of my life and maybe even after that won't get much closer. What Mangold does effectively is he doesn't give us too much information. He doesn't bog us down with statistics. He doesn't bog us down with mechanical engineering, things that matter when it comes to the races. He gives us enough information that we can kind of digest it and go, oh, okay, you're going to probably bring that up later. I'm going to keep that in the back of my head. But he mixes it with these emotional moments, with these dramatic moments, with these great actions, action set pieces. And he doesn't linger on a lot of these things. Like he knows when to say, okay, 
that scene's done. And the fact that he uses practical effects, the fact that we have replicas of these vintage cars that he's exploding and that he's breaking left and right, the way he shoots low to the ground, getting us just closer to the action, it all kind of bleeds into the fact that he knows when to start a scene, he knows when to stop, he knows when to start a conversation, he knows when to stop. And that comes with, just like a great pit crew, he knows when to let the writers do their thing and when to let the cinematographer do his thing. And it works so well. The whole movie works well to support everything about it. Nothing stood out because everything stood out. It's like going to Kohl's and being like, nothing's on sale because everything's on sale. In that case, it's a bad thing. In this case, it's a really good thing. And I, yeah. and I think it's fantastic. Yeah, I would agree mostly. I, I think the acting stood out for me. The ensemble of this cast is just fantastic across mm-hmm. the board. And I mean, you go into a movie where you have Christian Bale and Matt Damon as the leads, and there's an expectation that they're going to be great. But every single one of those supporting performances was great in there. They nailed the role that they came to play perfectly. They didn't overplay it to the point where they were distracting and taking away too much attention from the cast, the main two characters, but everybody seemed perfectly to fit within this group. And, you know, Damon specifically, I, I don't think he gets enough credit as being one of the greatest actors of his generation. I just don't. I think he has a different path of his career he's gone through you know the Bourne movies which everybody really likes and enjoys but nobody thinks of as you know dark knight christian bale worthy they don't have the name recognition of like playing a batman in the midst of your career he hasn't won the oscars but my goodness man matt damon is phenomenal and i think it shows here i really thought he carried this even you know against bale and Christian Bale's Christian Bale. Christian Bale is truly one of the greats of all time. There's no question about it. I, it would be hard for me to argue that he's not one of the top 10 actors we've ever had. I mean, the guy is amazing. In everything he does, he is amazing. But Damon is right there with him, step for step. And I thought he was amazing. So I, I just really, really enjoyed watching these guys act in this movie. And I usually don't necessarily feel like I focus in on that, but I did this time. I I did too. And I agree. Matt Damon is one of the unsung actors of the last 20 years. I I recall, I think the first time I saw him on screen was Goodwill Hunting and such a great performance that, that, that he, he had there. And then I watched him in Ocean's Eleven, playing a more subdued role, playing that character Linus. What a great name, by the way. Perfect for his demeanor. He was the casual, young young buck in that movie. I think what he brings to the table, Aaron, is a sense of range in terms of being able to do a breadth of, of performances. He's done some really great satirical comedy in The Informant. I thought that was pretty fantastic. So watching him play against Christian Bale, we get such an opposite of these two individuals. I remember thinking after the movie that Enzo Ferrari, as he's depicted, you could probably say a similar thing about Carol Shelby, a guy who is an amazing car designer, but who's kind of a fledgling car dealer. Like he makes these 
great cars and he has a racing business, a racing company, but it's not really successful. But you can tell where he puts a lot of his emphasis and that's in good design and good racing, which is probably the same thing you can say about Enzo Ferrari. So who's the bad guy here? And I mean, I don't think either one of them are bad. I think their motives are similar where I think Shelby stands out is the fact that he sees value in Ken Miles. And what surprised me, Aaron, was when I watched the opening section of this and we get introduced to Carol Shelby, we see him racing. I think he raced Le Mans. I think that's that's what the, the film shows us. Or he raced some 24-hour race. Yeah, no, he wins it at the beginning of the race. Does he win? At the beginning of the movie. Okay. But then he we find out that he's got that debilitating illness. He can't race anymore. But the movie doesn't go into a lot of detail about that. And it doesn't focus on that. It doesn't focus on his regret. What he sees is, I've got what I've got. I've got my design and I've got my racing team. And I don't even think he lives vicariously through Ken. One could argue that he does that. I think what he sees Ken as, as an opportunity to have fun racing and to enjoy the aspect of racing, even with all the headaches. But I love their polar opposite personalities because it looks like it really does look like the odd couple of, of racing. And in a lot of ways, it's perfect because you need somebody who's going to be completely passionate and completely driven, pun intended, and be really good at what he does and somebody else to handle the business side of that. So it's interesting to watch these two who one is a pretty successful businessman. But how Shelby and Miles really are, in a sense, resisting that corporateness while embracing it enough to kind of change the system. And I wanted to ask you, what did you think of how they approached that, how they saw Ford in relationship to this other brand that was Shelby America? And did it look like they were kind of piggybacking off of that success and trying to just get something out of it? Did it seem selfish or did you feel like they're their methods and what they did was kind of virtuous. Well, I mean, I, I think it all boils down to the fact that they needed Ford is the bottom line. The bottom line is that they need Ford to ensure financial ability to create. It is not unlike any other kind of business opportunity in the world <laughs> that people have gone through for all of time. For us, if we wanted to podcast full time, we would need someone to believe in our brand enough to front money so that we would have the ability to then go out and pay that investment off uh, by creating content 24 hours and not 24 hours a day, but like creating content seven days a week. Right. Um, and making it, you know, growing our listener base to where advertising was bringing in revenue to then make that investment worth it. It's corporate, it's business. And I think miles doesn't care about that. Miles just wants to drive a fast race car around the track and live in that moment of 200 miles an hour or whatever and then and win. And he enjoys that aspect of and make and work on cars. Shelby is that bridge that understands in order to do that, you're going to need this thing. Like they have the knowledge, right? But they don't have all of the resources, as I mentioned earlier, and they certainly don't have the resources and ability to, even if they were to create the perfect car, to market it 
and get it out there. We could be the best podcast on the market for people who want to listen to conversations about film. But if no one knows we exist, the only thing that matters is those that, that see it, right? But this is, Ford is the method of which you take the thing and you can get it to the masses. You can get the appeal of it out there. And so, I mean, I think that they are hoping that by showing Ford a family atmosphere, by showing Ford, and Ford is already a family business, but showing Ford the way in which Shelby is dedicated to Miles, the way in which this team goes about creating this race car group that can win Le Mans, that the hope is that Ford will embrace that. And not only just to see the car be put into production or to see the car be sold, right? But to maybe see Ford think a little differently about the way that he runs his employees and the way that he runs his business. Maybe he respects groups a little bit differently and doesn't quite think of them as much as, you know, just cogs in the machine as he does at the very beginning of the movie to that scene that you pointed out where he says, bring me an idea or don't come back. Um, and I think that's the way that they hope to change the system. But ultimately, you don't get anywhere if you don't play a part in that system in some way. It's fascinating and it's a great way to show us like the, the very real effect of how corporate America works and capitalism works in this story, but also how it hasn't really changed. Two things you said stood out to me. One, I think everything that you said could be summed up in the word endorsement and a mutual endorsement at that. You're exactly right. Shelby America, Ken and Shelby specifically needed Ford. They needed the parts. They needed the money. They needed the endorsement to be able to put their expertise on the map. I don't think they were met. Neither of them really were out to become famous. You're exactly right. Shelby wanted to design great cars and he wanted a challenge. There's that great scene where he's talking to, I think it's uh, Iacocca, and he says, what would it take to win Le Mans? And he said, it'll take something you can't buy, which starts the whole idea. What you're getting from Shelby America and what you're getting from the two of us specifically is something that doesn't have a price tag. It's not saying that they are a priceless commodity or asset. It's saying that they have something that can't have limits. You can't limit innovation. You can't limit the possibility of what if. You can't edit that out of design. And I think that's part of what Shelby was bringing as a company is that ability to ideate more ways in which to make a car faster, sleeker, more popular. That was Iacocca's dream. That's what he was pushing. Ferrari, I think, was the kind of the uh, MacGuffin for them. Yes, beating Ferrari was a big deal, but what they did along the way to advance the technology by being able to pull out entire brake systems and put, you know, replace them on site to come up with creative ways to make a car go faster and look sleeker. It's those things that I think Shelby and Miles together really wanted to accomplish. We want to get better at what we do, but we, we've hit a threshold. 
we can design really great looking cars and we know what they can do, but we don't have the resources to make them any better. And sometimes it means reaching out to a deep pocketed individual to realize your dream, to actualize that. I love the fact that not once did Carol Shelby think that they were, that he was better than, than Ford. I think he was apprehensive because of Ken. And there's that one scene that we've talked about, we haven't talked about on the, on the podcast, but I talked to you about it offline where the F bomb, the one F bomb of the PG 13 movie comes out. And it's, it's so perfect for that moment because it tells you exactly how Ken feels about the system, how he feels about big business. He looks at this Ford Mustang that looks amazing and he just completely rips it apart technically. It's this and it's that. And you know what? The interior looks like this, but the outside is, you know, this. And I think he sums it up by saying it's an effing ugly car. I mean, everything, it basically diminished everything that was put into it over however many months or years Mm -hmm. that it came, came to be. But it says a lot about Ken's attitude towards you make a bunch of cars that come off the assembly line. And I think at some point, I don't know if it's Iacocca or somebody that says it's not going to matter how many cars you pump out off the assembly line. It's how those cars are received by the demographic that we're going after. Enzo Ferrari. They're not sexy enough. And Ferrari talks about how every single one of their cars are made by hand. Every piece of that. Right. There's no machines, he says, mm-hmm. whereas obviously Ford is very different than that. And it's funny that he uses the word ugly, too, I think, because he's calling a objectively beautiful from a visual standpoint machine that we would all go, oh, my gosh, that looks amazing. And he's calling it ugly because he knows what's underneath. Exactly. He knows it's a corporate facade, that it's what the company thinks the people want. And that's not the case, whereas Enzo Ferrari is actually designing for the people. He's saying, this is a beautiful car. Also, it's really fast. And the fact that it's handmade, I mean, that's an asset to a car owner is, hey, these parts were put in by hand. Therefore, it's going to cost more money. What we come to realize now is that those sports cars, the Ford GT40 is a car that, and I'm saying this today, if you were to buy a car today like that, it would cost you about 300 grand. I looked at it on eBay. But here's a little fact that I found out tonight, Aaron. If you buy the car from an authorized reseller, you are not allowed. You are, you are breaking corporate law if you try to resell it. You are not allowed wow. to sell the car to anyone else because Ford, want, that's how deeply they care about this model car and probably a number of others that existed back then. These are special cars, and I think that says a lot about the Ford company, how they start valuing what they produce and not how many of that thing they produce. Because remember, Enzo said, your cars are ugly and your factory is ugly. Like He even takes pride in the environment that these things are built in because of the fact that they come off assembly lines. And you you have employee number 82 that puts puts the hubcaps on all the cars. Numbers don't matter to him quality matters. And I think that that was an eye-opening experience because the same thing probably applied to Shelby. There were a number of different styles of cars that existed in that car lot inside the hangar. But you got to believe that Shelby put a lot of time into those designs and understanding that they didn't need this or they needed that and that some cars were made to be race cars and some cars were made to look good. 
And so in a lot of ways, I feel like Shelby was that bridge that you mentioned. He was able to translate corporate America to Ken in a way where he understood. And I love the fact that he had real talk with him. He said, Ken, this is how it is. This is what they want. Just before he goes out there, he says, they want you to slow down so that all three of the Fords can cross the finish line at the same time. He goes, is that what you want? He says, I want you to make that decision. It's up to you. But I needed you to know that. Because later on, I think he's accused at least partly of when Ken does that. He's like, man, or, or when he finds out that Ken doesn't win. When McLaren wins, I think it's Phil that says, maybe we shouldn't have told him. He says, you know, no. It needed to be his decision. And I think that speaks volumes about their friendship, about the fact that they are friends first more than partners, but that that friendship fuels the success of their partnership. And it makes the, it makes Ken's death that much more impactful because that was a, that was an, an anchor for Shelby. And Shelby, I believe, was an anchor for Ken in a lot of ways. Um, and I think that's why I like the fact that Mangle didn't spend a lot of time with it because we were able to kind of digest all that in a way that was subjective to us. Like we, we felt that in our own way. We didn't have to be told, here's how you're supposed to feel. Ford v. Ferrari gives us a lot of that emotion. And it's, for me, one of the great racing movies that I've seen in the last 10 years. And I, I wanted to ask you, how does that compare to other racing movies that, that we've gotten to cover and that we've watched, like Rush or the FF franchise, maybe even Days of Thunder? I hate this question. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, not better or worse, but just where, where does that, yeah, just... I mean... It's different. It is so much more of a. It's closer to probably. I don't know, man. I, it feels like nothing. That's part of why I love it so much. Feels like nothing that I've really seen before. It just doesn't. Rush is so visceral and so much about people with all kinds of issues <laughs> and the fight between them and the redemption, like we talked about. Days of Thunder similar in some ways to that somebody hanging on just trying to not let go grasping to keep that success that they've had in the past and then the franchise of course you know the first movie has some street racing in it but it's never really been about racing per se it's revolved around street racing culture that these people are a part of but the racing part is not the focus by any means you know there's some great races in it and that's part of what i was saying earlier about this is that for me the races in those other films will always stand out more than the race in ford v ferrari like that is not what i'm gonna remember they were awesome race sequences and i enjoyed them and at times i even you know would grip the sides of my chair like you said but like i don't come away with them in my mind the way that i do with rush or with the dom and brian first race in the first fast and furious movie or with the days of thunder finale those are those are always just stick out more to me uh for some reason and so i think it's because this is much more about people than it is about the racing and the racing is just what they were there to do i guess and so it's unique and i think i love that about it and it allows it to stand alongside them without having to be judged against them. And that makes me really happy. 
for sure. Adding the fact that this was a historical piece amplifies it for me because Mangold understands that it's about the journey of the individuals and the racing comes second, but not second in a sense that it's inferior, second in a sense that it accents it really nicely. I was surprised at how little racing there was. I was surprised at how I felt during the Daytona race versus Le Mans and how different of an experience I got. But I really believe that was by design. And when you put it in the same camp as a racing movie with Rush and FF, I think it says a lot about racing movies in general, how there can be a different perspective, a different focus for each one of those. Because we can recommend any of those four, or I say, I guess, 11, if we count the FF franchise individually. But if we look at the first movie and we look at that first race, it sets the tone for the kind of relationship that they're going to have, Dom and Brian. Same thing with, with Rush. You know it's about a rivalry. So everything is fueling that rivalry in in that movie. In a lot of ways, Ford v. Ferrari sets that up in a different way for us. It sets up a friendship. It sets up the need to be a part of something bigger and the need to not really even prove yourself, but really more go on that journey and all and get to the same place from different angles. So it's going to stand out to me as one of the great racing movies, maybe not as visceral as Rush, maybe not as action-packed as the FF franchise, and maybe not as Tom Cruise as Days of Thunder, but in its own right, the fact that it has that historical connection is going to give it kind of some uniqueness because I know that this really happened, even down to the small details that happen at Le Mans that you think, what? Did that really? Oh, it really did happen. That's incredible. So all those things just add to what makes it great for me without having to make it better or worse than any other ones. It's just it's worthy of sitting in that family of race car movies for me. All right, man, it's connecting point time. And uh, why don't you go first to kick us off? Sure thing. Well, I keep talking about relationships, so it's really no surprise that mine is going to be about one. And that is the central one. Shelby and Miles love the performances and the way that these two interact. And one scene for me sells me on this movie completely. And it had me so invested and I wanted to cry and laugh at the same time. And it's just one of the great scenes of the year for me. And that is the lead up to this is Miles was told he isn't going to get to drive in Le Mans by Shelby. And that is the last time he has seen Carol. He hears that Ford loses on the radio. And in the meantime, Ford has met with Carol and this is where that conversation has happened, and Carol has told Ford he needs a second chance. And after gaining that second chance, he is going to go and talk to Ken. And so he does that, and Ken is walking home with groceries from across the street, and Carol's first thing he does is sort of make an excuse, in a sense. He goes and he tells Ken... How they told me I had carte blanche. I looked it up. It's French for horse shit, which is hilarious, by the way. But he's trying to make a joke. But Ken is having nothing of it. And Kim wants an apology. 
And eventually, their frustrations boil over, and it is the most hilarious grown man wrestling match slash fight that I have seen in a very long time, if ever. These two actors, fake fighting, Patrick, was like nothing I've ever seen. I didn't know whether to smile or be embarrassed for them or what. I mean, it is an awful fight, like terrible. Like they're bad at fighting, not... Like, it was dangerous. It was just like, what? And it's it's just so realistic because this they're not fighters, right? They're car mechanics and engineers and drivers. And so it looked realistic to me because they're flailing around like idiots. Made me think about what it might look like if I was getting in a fight with you, honestly. Because you don't really want to hurt each other, but you're angry and you're kind of lashing out, but not really. And what makes it even better is that Molly sees this and she goes and gets a lawn chair and she comes out and sits down and watches them and just just she just thumbs through her magazine while she's yeah she's just like so waiting perfect. for it to be over <laughs> the, the dialogue is fantastic from that opening piece with uh shelby to when they're finally spent and lying on the ground next to each other and molly comes over to them and ken says darling can I get a fizzy pop, please? <laughs> and Shelby says, you know, he wants one too. And Miles is like, no, don't get him one. And so <laughs> it's just, it's utterly hilarious. And they end up getting them and they toast and they lay there on the ground, just talking smack to each other. But ultimately the, the point is that it is about them clearing the air and it is beautiful. It's funny. It's a great way to show the closeness of their friendship and what that's like, and also of Molly and Ken, too, an understanding of their marriage, because she walks over, she says, I'm going to go get groceries. And Ken, you know, holds up, and he's like, I think we need some bread or something. <laughs> you know, he's, yeah, she's he's like, gonna... do, do we need anything? He goes, ice cream and maybe bread. <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> a, a broken piece of bread. Because <laughs> they've completely ruined all the groceries, right? Yeah. And so <laughs> it's great, because not only did they vent in a way that they needed to, but she understood that and allows it to happen. And doesn't pass judgment on them for it. And they're able to go forward trusting each other again and work to build a winner ultimately. And I think it is a defining scene and it is just perfectly created, perfectly crafted, acted, directed. Everything about it is wonderful for me. It's a fantastic scene. And you had linked or tagged me in a link to some of the behind the scenes stuff with the cinematography and what struck me is watching that scene and then watching the two actors watch the scene play out and just laughing at each other because they see exactly what you do. This, oh my gosh, we're idiots, but it needed to happen. And that's the way that that friendship is defined as an old man fight <laughs> with a little epilogue of fizzy pop and and laughing, which is just fantastic. I think that my connecting point, I admit, was influenced by a scene breakdown that Mangold took took us through. There's a, a video online, uh, which I absolutely love. And it's the what I call the what he calls the calm before the storm. And it's the the moment that we see Miles with a cup of coffee in his hands walking through. I guess it's the garage or training room, whatever you call it at Le Mans a few minutes before the race actually starts. And the way he's describing it reminds me of how meticulous he is. He wanted to show 
as much as he could without saying a word. And so he takes us through that scene watching Ken just kind of casually sip his coffee, walking through, seeing some of the the other drivers. And then we cut to the open air racetrack and we see all the cars lined up. We hear the dialogue between him and and Shelby when they when we see the uh, the Ford show up that powder blue I think it's number one which I think is pretty fantastic and he makes a comment about it's not as pretty as the Ferraris and I think Shelby says something like well hopefully it'll be the fastest which is a commentary about part of what Ford's trying to get to is we need to be fast but we also need to look good doing it and then it culminates with what Mengel describes as something that doesn't happen anymore at Le Mans, which is the 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 foot race start, where the cars are all set up at an angle and the drivers are on the opposite side, essentially waiting for a gun to go off or somebody to say go in French, and they race to their cars and take off. This is not a it's not a NASCAR start, it's not a rolling start, it's not a gentleman start your engines. It feels like a twelve year old, hey, first one to his car wins. It's crazy. It is crazy. And he talks about how they had to wait for the right time of day to get the the lighting the way it was because it was a supposed to be a late afternoon start. I think it started at 4 p.m. So to get the lighting that way and to see all the cars, he wanted to capture that moment because it doesn't exist anymore. The Le Mans doesn't do that. I think it's for safety reasons, obviously. And when you see that many drivers, he didn't talk about digital drivers. These were all drivers in cars, professional drivers that had to do that to be able to capture that and capture that chaos was one of the more challenging shots that he was really proud of. But then he says, I wanted to keep things as immersive as possible. So I shot low to the ground. So you see that opening lap where all the cars are chaotic, potentially running into each other. There's a lot of smoke and you see Ken who is trying to shut his door. Like he has a door malfunction at the very beginning of the race. And that surprised me, Aaron. That was the biggest thing that surprised me was the fact that that actually happened. Mengel didn't just throw that in. That actually happened. And for the first lap of the race, he's going 150, 160 miles an hour trying to keep his door shut. And he eventually has to pit. And then I think it's Phil who takes that that sledgehammer or whatever, the, the mallet, and just gets his door finally closed. I love the fact that Mengel not only incorporated those details like that start and that malfunction, but he didn't make it up. And if it, if it had been something that didn't happen, maybe another director might include that to say, Hey, let's amp up the tension. But he knew that that was consistent with his narrative and consistent with one of the three big race, or excuse me, one of the two big races that, that he had filmed. And he said, I really wanted this to be a big moment. I wanted this to set the pace, quite literally, for how we're going to experience this race for the next, I think he said for the next 45 minutes during the, during the movie. I don't know if it took that long, but there was a, there was so much going on in it that it put me into the chaos, but the way he shot it made it very personal. So we're in the passenger side with Ken. We're seeing him up next to the Ferraris. And that, to me, got me emotionally vested in it. Like, I was really connected at that point. Daytona was a close second, but had it not been for that 
slow opening of getting us used to that that area to the to the track to where everybody was sitting you know seeing Enzo up in the up in the I guess the the luxury suite with Ford sitting on the ground and you see it's just like an introduction to all the players in the movie that remind us that this is more than a story about Ken Miles. It's more than a story about Carol Shelby. It's about Henry Ford. It's about Leo Beatty. It's about Enzo Ferrari. And that's hard to do with that. But with a great ensemble cast that's well balanced, this is where Mangold, I think, knocks it out of the park is in that opening, in that scene particularly. Yeah, it's good stuff. And that, that whole start thing is, was blowing my mind the whole time when I heard my friend had told me that that was going to happen. And we was discussing the history and I didn't know, we didn't know it was going to be the movie. But then when they showed it, I was just like, that's crazy. Like people would get run over. Cars would crash immediately before they could even get started onto the track. I mean, this race was something else. It is truly endurance and not speed. Unlike anything I had ever known about before. I actually did not understand what Le Mans truly was until this movie and i'm grateful because I, that's one thing i really enjoy is when i go to a biopic and i get to actually walk away feeling like i've learned something about history definitely a bonus for biopics well that brings us to the finish line of this episode of feeling film as we keep the puns rolling <laughs> coming up next week we have got a packed lineup for you thanksgiving in the u.s at least is just around the corner and so is our 200th episode Along with our conversation about Peanut Butter Falcon dropping the first part of next week, we will be following it up with back-to-back-to-back releases of one of our favorite trilogies as a three-part episode. Then right behind that, we have our November donor pick, which I am proud to say is Shawshank Redemption. Thank you, Yes, thank you, patrons. It has been redeemed. It has been redeemed, so let's do it justice. Shawshank redeemed. (laughs) Perfect, perfect. If that wasn't enough for our donors, we will also be giving you some fun trivia bonus content to finish out the week. So charge your devices and get ready for some great road trip conversation. Speaking of great conversations, this was fantastic, Aaron. I appreciate it. And we will talk soon. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoy the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. These help increase visibility for the show grow our community of listeners like you. We also invite you to connect with us further by joining our ever-growing Facebook discussion group. A link to that is in the show notes, or you can just search on Facebook and find us that way. If you'd like to continue the conversation with me, you can follow the show on Twitter, at FeelinFilm, or connect with me in the Facebook group. I'm very active in both places and would love to chat. And if you want to connect with me, you can find me at Shoeless Patch on both Facebook and Twitter. Be sure to tag me in any comments so that I'll be notified and not miss you. Once again, thank you for listening. We'll be back soon. Until then, stay positive. And keep feeling filmed.